Before I bring the message this morning on God's three deadlines, I'm going to ask the pastor to lead us in a moment of prayer or call on somebody before I bring the message. Brother Bill, lead us. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts rejoice this morning. We're not saddened at all by what our hearts feel, but we rejoice today. And seeing the auditorium filled as you want it to be filled. Yes. And Father, we rejoice today that there are people that are going to get saved today. Amen. We rejoice today that you've sent Dr. Smith our way. But God, he's a human being. He's a man of flesh. He needs the endowment and the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit upon his life to preach this message this morning. Father, he knows word for word and verse by verse the message, but God, may it flow up this morning like an artesian well. And Lord, I pray that it might pour over on us like a refreshing waterfall from the very fountains of heaven. And I pray, God, that you'll stir each of our hearts to live more like Jesus and those that are not saved this morning, or those that think they're saved and not sure, those who have fooled people for years about their salvation. May it be the hour when God will grip their hearts, and Lord, may they be saved. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to read with us a scripture lesson. I invite you to turn, please. Let us read together from Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and we begin our reading with verse 22 of this wonderful and marvelous portion of the Word of God. Matthew 12, 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one into a strong man's house, and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me gather he that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now you remember that this week we've been announcing to you that the good Lord willing this morning, and if he tarried, I would be bringing you the message on God's three deadlines. 
I want to be clearly understood as I begin this message this morning that I have but one desire in presenting to you this message, and that is that I may warn, that I may plead with somebody not to step over one of these three deadly deadlines. So, as we look in the Word of God, we find that there are three definite positive deadlines drawn in the book of God. Deadline number one is blaspheming against the Holy Ghost or committing the unpardonable sin. Deadline number two is sinning away your day of grace. And deadline number three is the sin under death. So as we look into the Word of God and study this, I trust that we can study it prayerfully, carefully, and above everything else, I trust that we can study it scripturally and come to know what thus saith the Lord in regard to these three deadly deadlines. Deadline number one, blaspheming against the Holy Ghost or committing the unpardonable sin. All my life, before I ever begin to study the Word of God, and before I ever come to know what the Scriptures say, all of my life, I had heard that the unpardonable sin was saying no to the Holy Spirit for the last time. And then I heard others say that it was committing suicide. I believe that there are people in heaven that committed suicide. I really believe that with all of my heart. I know that suicide is not the unpardonable sin. And I also know that saying no to the Holy Ghost the last time is not the unpardonable sin. Now you say, Brother Smith, what is this sin? Well, in an order to understand any scripture, it doesn't make any difference what that scripture may be. In order to understand any portion of the Word of God, you must take that portion of the scripture in its proper context. I can pull out of the scriptures... They're out of their context, and I can prove almost anything that I want to prove by the Bible. Let me illustrate it with one illustration. The Bible says that Judas went out and hanged himself. Another part of the Bible says, Go thou and do likewise. A third part of the Bible says, What thou doest, do quickly. So if I were to pull all three of those scriptures out of their proper context, I could justify every one of us immediately going out and committing suicide. And you know and I know that the Bible doesn't teach any such thing. Now you say, Brother Smith, what is this sin? And what was the Lord doing when he gave the doctrine of the unpardonable sin? The Bible declares that they had brought to him a man possessed with a demon of dumbness and a demon of blindness. And our Lord had performed a wonderful miracle and had healed that man so that he both spake and saw. And when that man began to speak, and when he opened his eyes and could see, the Pharisees who were standing around hated our Lord with a passion. And seeing this great and wonderful miracle that our Lord had just performed, they realized that they were about to lose face. They realized that the people that were standing around were all looking at them saying, Now what have you got to say? And then looking into their faces, these Pharisees said, You stupid, ignorant people, you're not able to interpret what this man has done. And the thing that you do not know and the thing that you do not understand is that this man has performed a wonderful miracle. But the thing that you do not know is that he performed it by the power of Beelzebub. Now Beelzebub means the prince of filth. Or the prince of flies. Or the chief of the devils. So they said, you, this man, has performed a wonderful miracle, but he did it by the power of the prince of filth. 
I know and you know that the Lord Jesus Christ, all that he did while he was here upon this earth, he did it through the third person of the Trinity, through the power of the Holy Ghost. And so they attributed this wonderful and marvelous work of our wonderful Lord to the work of the prince of devils or to the prince of filth or to the prince of flies. Now this brings before my mind the word unpardonable. Now there are many things that I consider and many things that I hear people talking about that are unpardonable that I believe are within the scope of God's grace. I was in Houston, Texas in a revival meeting when that awful and terrible sex crime was revealed and brought to light where two young men had killed 27 young men after they had brutally assaulted them with a perverted sex act they had brutally murdered 27 young lads, young boys, and buried them in shallow graves. One of the boys, you remember, was murdered. But that other boy that is yonder now in one of those prisons in Texas, if he would bow in that little cell where he is this morning, and said, I brutally assaulted 27 young men and brutally murdered them, Oh, God, have mercy upon me. There would be room at the cross for that sex pervert to be converted and to be saved. That is not unpardonable. I'm sure that maybe some of you read in our own local paper, or maybe here in Detroit, maybe you read in the paper where this young man in our own city began to read one of these way out Eastern religions. And in that course that he was taking in that religious course, it had one little chapter in there, one little paragraph, that before he could attain the mystic power of that specific and that certain religion, he would have to murder his own mother. And then he'd have to sever from her body certain parts of her body and boil them and eat them before he could ever attain that power. This young man, one night while his mother was preparing the evening meal, slipped up behind her with a big butcher knife that he had sharpened to raise a sharp edge and pulled that knife across her throat, severed her head from her body, took the designated parts, severed them from her body, and then ate them, and then took that head of that sweet mother. She was a godly woman, a good woman, and wrapped it up in newspapers, put it in a little basket, and carried it down to St. Boniface Catholic Church, their own Garrison Avenue, and placed it upon the altar in that church. That boy denied his yonder in an institution in Little Rock. And I tell you, if that boy today could bow in that institution and say, I murdered my own mother and ate part of her body, there would be room at the cross to forgive him and to cleanse him and to save him. That sin is not unpardonable. We had in our area a young doctor, 38 years old. He was a fine surgeon. This young doctor had married three years before a lovely and a sweet girl. God had given them just six months before this incident a sweet little boy. One of the sweetest little boys you'd ever want to see. Handsome and strong of body. And that doctor came in one Saturday at noon under the influence of liquor and dope. His wife said to him, Jim, I'm going to step across the street here and visit for a moment. And little Jim 
is back there in the little Jim is back there in the nursery. And this young man, after his wife left, went into the kitchen and pulled up and got a little poker that they had there in their den about that long, a little iron poker. And took that poker and put it over the gas jet and heated it to a red hot heat. And then went into that little nursery where his little junior, his little son was, and inserted that red hot poker up each nostril as far as he could insert it up to the top of the skull. And then through each eye. And then finally he rammed that red hot poker down the throat of his little son and fell over in the floor in a drunken stupor. When his wife returned in about an hour and found that little son brutally and horribly murdered and her son and her husband lying there on the floor, she screamed and ran out of the house. When they finally got that doctor sober, he is today in a mental institution, in a cell, no wider than this little platform that I'm on right here. And night and day, and almost every waking moment that that doctor's awake, the attendants tell me that he walks up and down that place with not a stitch of clothing on him, saying, What did I do? What did I do? What did I do to my little son? But I tell you, if that doctor today could bow on his knees and call upon God, there would be room at the cross to forgive him and to cleanse him from his sin. But I'm talking about a sin... I'm talking about a sin worse, I tell you, than kidnapping. I'm talking about a sin that's worse than murder. I'm talking about a sin that is worse than killing your own mother and eating a part of her body. Oh, you say, Brother Smith, I don't believe it. The Lord says that these sins can be forgiven, but there is a sin that our God says if you commit it, you shall never be forgiven, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. If you would ask me, Brother Bill, if you would ask me to pick out the quartet of words in the Bible that I consider to be the most horrible words ever recorded in the Bible. I wouldn't take me five minutes to pick them out when the Lord Jesus Christ said these words shall never be forgiven. Brethren, I'll tell you, if you were to search the whole Bible, you would not be able to find a quartet of words equal to those four shall never be forgiven. And those were uttered by God himself. That brings before my mind screaming, dying, doomed, damned, men and women. I tell you, I see their horrified gazes. I see their despairing look. I see their hopeless end. These men that have stepped across God's deadline and committed the unpardonable sin. Now you say, Brother Smith, what is the unpardonable sin? Which member of the body do we use in committing this sin? And how long may we expect to live before we die after we commit this sin? That brings to my mind one other word. And I must discuss this with you before I answer those questions. And that's the word blaspheme. Now what does it mean to blaspheme? The word blaspheme comes from two Greek words meaning to speak hurtfully. So when a man speaks hurtfully of the Holy Ghost, that man has committed a sin whereby he can never be forgiven in this world, nor in the world to come. Jesus Christ said, He that speaketh the word against the Son, it shall be forgiven him. He that speaketh the word against the Father, it shall be forgiven him. 
There isn't hardly an adult in this house, but what, sometime or another in your life, you have heard somebody say, blankety blank blank, God Almighty. There isn't a one of us hardly, but what, sometime or another, we've heard somebody say, blankety blank blank, Jesus Christ. But I challenge anybody in this house, have you ever heard anybody say, blankety blank blank, Holy Ghost? Not a one of us. But I want to tell you, when you accredit the work of the Holy Ghost to the work of the devil, the Bible declares that you have stepped over a deadline whereby you can never be forgiven. I want everybody in this house that's got a King James Version, I want you to turn in that Bible to James chapter 3 and verse 6. And I'm sure that many of you have read James chapter 3 verse 6. I'm sure that you've read this verse many times, but it made it never registered upon you. This is one of the most horrible verses in all of the Bible. Notice what it says, James chapter 3 and verse 6. And the tongue is a F-I-R-E. I wonder if that's why God has to keep it bathed all the time. The Bible declares, a world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature. But now here's what I want you to get. And the Bible says, and it is set on fire of hell. God, realizing that your tongue is the only member of your body with which you can commit a sin, whereby you can never be forgiven, has enclosed that little deadly member behind two prison walls. First of all, there are the ivory bars, your teeth. And then there is the fleshy moat, your lips, and coiled up back there in that dungeon called your mouth is that little deadly member. Ready to spring out and commit a sin whereby you can never be forgiven. You can be forgiven of adultery. I tell you, if you are the biggest alcoholic brother I tell you that ever drank a bottle of wine, liquor, or beer, God can forgive you this morning and save you and give you a joy and a peace where you'll never want another drop of liquor as long as you live. By the way, just let me say right here long enough to say this, that Alcoholism is not a disease. That's the lie of the devil. But I tell you, God never has sent anybody to, to hell. Doctor, God never has sent a man to hell for being a, having cancer, or a heart attack, or high blood pressure. But I want to tell you something. Alcoholism is sin. It is S-I-N. And when somebody tells you once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, that's a lie. Some of the greatest Christians that I know in the world today, brother, where you, they used to be alcoholics and they've been years and years and they've never touched a drop of liquor since the day God saved them. You can go to the AAs, brother, I tell you, and then backslide and go back to drinking, but you can't come to the cross and really meet the Lord Jesus Christ, brother, I tell you, and not be delivered from alcoholism. Amen. So it's not alcoholism. It's not telling a lie. It's not stealing. It's not cheating. But I tell you, what is this sin? It's attributing the work of God, or the work of the Holy Spirit, to the work of the devil. We have seen the work of the Holy Spirit this week. Amen. Brother Preacher, last Saturday night, a week ago, when we bowed here in this auditorium, about 100, 150 of us bowed on our knees and began to pray that God would give us a work this week that everybody would identify as the work of God and not the work of an evangelist, nor the work of a pastor. We have seen that this week. Amen. We have seen hundreds of people come to this altar this week. 
I've seen big, strong men standing down here with the tears running down their face. I've seen teenage boys like these right here on this front. If you could have taken a stick and beaten them, brother, I tell you, brutally, and they'd have never shed a tear. I've seen them stand here and weep. I've seen old men and women, brother, stand here and shake like they were having the chill under the power of God this week. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And you get out of here, brother, and laugh about it and make fun of it. And I want to tell you, you've stepped over the deadline and God will kill you for doing it. As I look here, I see God saying there's a line drawn and you better not step over it. You say, preacher, have you ever seen anybody step over this lead line? I've never known a woman personally to step over this deadline. I've only known 19 men. Not a one of them's alive today. You remember the Bible declares that Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar's grandfather, when he went up to Jerusalem and sacked Jerusalem, he brought down the holy vessels out of the temple. When he burned the temple and took the temple, he brought down those golden vessels. And then old Nebuchadnezzar, while he was having his big revelry and orgy of sin, whether he was worshiping the gods of gold, the gods of silver, the gods of brass, the gods of iron, the gods of wood, the gods of stone, he said, bring down those vessels that my grandfather Nebuchadnezzar brought down from Jerusalem. And then he drank my wine out of them. And the Bible said he started to pour that wine in those golden, those sanctified vessels. And the minute he did, the Bible says that the part of a man's hand appeared over against the candlesticks and began to write out his doom. And the Bible says, in that night was Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, slain. He didn't live 24 hours. The Bible tells us about Herod. Old Herod made a great speech. He gave not God the glory. And preacher, I tell you, the Bible says that immediately he was smitten of worms. One minute, I tell you, he was standing up there robed in all of the regal robes of Rome. And the next minute, he wasn't a thing else but a gob of maggots. The scriptures would indicate that in less than one minute after he stepped across God's deadline, he was slain and was nothing but a working mass of maggots. Ananias... Sapphira, you have lied not to the church and not to me, but you have lied to the Holy Ghost. <laughs> and down he went in death. About three or four hours later, his wife came in. And she, Simon Peter said, did you sell the property for so much? And she said, so much. And he said, I see the Paul bearers that's just buried your husband. They're just returning. And I see Sapphira go down in death, killed immediately. Less than one minute. Less than one minute, but I tell you, after they lied to the Holy Ghost, they were dead. And the Bible says, great fear fell upon the rest of the church. I've known 19 men to commit this sin. Not a one of them's alive today. Somebody said, are you able to verify these facts? 
I certainly can. I was in Asheville, North Carolina in a revival meeting and one of the professors, high school professors, 29-year-old bachelor, living with his mother. And one of the deacons had started to the church, I started the big tent. We'd been there then for four weeks. We had over 1,100 people saved. I don't mean rededicated. I mean people born in the, into the family of God. And this deacon lived next door to this professor. The professor, professor was mowing his lawn. And he stopped and he said to him, I'm going to the tent meeting. Professor, have you been out? And that professor stopped that lawnmower. He began to curse, curse me. He cursed the tent. He cursed this deacon for asking him. The deacon said, I'm sorry. I didn't know you felt that way about it. That deacon got back in his car, backed his car out. He went just about as far as from here up to that red light, up to the first red light up here. That professor had only time just to start his mower and mow a little sp space about as far as from here to the organ, according to the testimony of a lady across the street. He grabbed himself and began to groan and mourn and started toward the his porch. His mother ran down off the porch. This lady ran across the street and before either one of them could reach him that 29 year old man was dead and in hell. When they examined him they couldn't find a thing in the world physically wrong with him. God killed him in less than a minute after he was cursing God and cursing the work of God. I'll never forget when I was younger in a revival meeting in Fair Place, South Carolina the Beaver Dam Baptist Church. I don't even remember what I preached on that Friday night. It wasn't this message. But when I gave the invitation, the church was packed and jammed. I saw a young man sent up on this far section, right on the back pew. He sat up on the pew and began to look out over the congregation. I walked off the platform. I walked down this way, up the side of the church. And I was right in front of that young man before he knew I was there. And I said, son, are you saved? I never forget it. He folded his arms like this. He looked at me like a wild animal. And he said, listen here, Smith. He said, I didn't come here to hear you preach tonight. I came here to get a couple of girls to go to, the, uh, to a dance. And as soon as I can locate them, you can have our space. I said, but son, the Holy Spirit told me to come back here and speak to you. He said, I told you I did not come here to get saved. You and the Holy Ghost both go to hell. God said, get away from him. Don't you speak another word to him. I'm going to kill him. He just blasphemed against my spirit. Don't you speak another word, Harold. You get away from him. I began to back off of him like I would a rattlesnake. I went back to the pulpit. I said, Folks, do you see that boy standing on that pew? I do not know who he is. But I said, he just stepped over God's deadline. God's going to kill him. He pulled up his arms like that and said, Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. That's what he said. Oh, yeah. I didn't respond. I dismissed. He got those two girls. Uh, they went five miles to a dance hall at five minutes of twelve. He and his buddy stepped out on a little old porch to smoke a cigarette and have a drink of liquor. They lit their cigarettes and this buddy opened the flask and took a drink and started to hand it over to this boy. He started to reach over to get it according to his buddy, but he never touched it. He folded up like a jackknife, fell on that platform, and began to scream. They stopped the orchestra, pulled him inside the dance hall, sent for Dr. Mays. Dr. Mays that night was sitting just three, three seats in front of him. Dr. Mays said, when I got to that dance hall at 20 minutes after 12, when I walked in, there were two things that I recognized immediately. First of all, I recognized the boy as being the one that was standing on that platform, on that, on, on that seat. The second thing I knew before I ever touched him, Dr. Mays said, was that he was dead. Dr. Mays said, I never examined a body in my life like I did his. And I, he stood up and testified, I couldn't find a thing that would have caused his death. God killed him in less than three hours. 
I was in Taylor, South Carolina in a revival meeting at the Southern Bleachery Baptist Church. Brother Harrison was a great pastor of that church. Two boys drove up in a motorcycle riding piggyback. One of the deacons invited them to come into the meeting. They cursed Brother Harrison, who is one of the greatest men of God I've ever known in my life. They cursed that church, which is one of the most spiritual churches I've ever had the privilege of preaching in, in my life. They cursed me. I would, not t I would not say in this audience, I would not repeat what those men said for no, no amount of money you could give me. One of them said, while you poor saps are listening to that jackass by the name of J. Harold Smith Bray in there tonight, we'll be in Spartanburg, South Carolina, watching a leg show. They started up the motorcycle. The boy on the back of it said, Paul, you express my sentiments exactly. You know, if you've ever been there, you know, in the old road around the Cheek Springs Road, there was a curve there uphill, about a half a mile curve, just slow winding curve. At the inquest, the boy, the, the man that was driving his automobile up the hill, he said, I was not aware of a motorcycle being in my vicinity until I saw it come up out of the corner of my eye, I saw it come up by the side of my car. He said, the first thought I had was that it was a traffic officer, and I immediately looked at my speedometer, and I was going about 60 miles an hour. The fellow coming down the hill around the curve said, I saw the oncoming car, but I did not see the motorcycle by the two boys riding it. Until it was about a hundred feet in front of me, then suddenly it pulled out from behind that car. And before I could ever touch the brakes, we had hit head on. And they said, how fast were you going? He said, somewhere between 60 and 65 miles an hour. So Brother Bill, they had to be going at least 60 miles an hour when they hit the car. They had to be coming. That car was coming from 60 to 65. So they hit with an impact of 120 miles an hour. The boy that was riding on the front of the motorcycle, the one who had done all of the talking, went up and over that motorcycle. Such an impact, his helmet went off and he hit that pavement on the right side of his face and just scrubbed off every bit of his head right down through the right side of his head. The right eye, the right ear, the right jaw, all of it was gone. The boy on the back of the motorcycle, brother, went into the radiator of that oncoming car. Did you ever take a piece of meat and run it through what we call a sausage mill and see it rolled out on the other side? From along about here on that boy, there was nothing back on that hot engine but just roving hair, flesh, brain, blood. He was headless. In less than one minute and a half after they were both cursing God, both of them were in hell. You say, just a freak accident. You'd never get me to believe that. I was in Ringgold, Louisiana. We were closing our revival meeting in the big rodeo arena. I was preaching the very sermon I'm preaching tonight, or uh, this morning. Three of the leading businessmen were sitting on the last tier of seats, on the last row of seats, on my right. As I preached, they mocked and made fun. When I gave the invitation, I'll never forget how the one of them said, There goes your poker player. Another one said, Oh, look at that. There goes your girlfriend. There goes your girlfriend. Man, you're going to have to get you another girlfriend. There they go. Brother, they laughed and mocked as 400 people walked that aisle that night. When they got through, I said, I do not know who you three men are, but I want to tell you, I've got a message from the Lord. All three of you have stepped over God's deadline. Get ready to die. They laughed and mocked and made fun of that statement.
The next morning, this was about almost 10 o'clock at night. The next morning at 8, o- 8 o'clock, one of those men started to unlock the door of his business and dropped dead. At 11.30, the second man started to cross the street from his business to a restaurant. And a lady said, I was coming down the street. And brother, he just crumpled and fell right in the middle of the street. She said, I almost ran over him. Before she could get stopped and call some of the people from the sidewalk, he was a corpse. At 5 o'clock that afternoon, the third one was sitting with his secretary. He said, you see that sun? Before it goes down, my two buddies are already in hell. And I'll join them before the sun goes down and pitched out of his seat in the office. Brother, I tell you, a corpse. I'd closed the revival meeting, gone about a hundred miles away to start another meeting that Monday night. After I got through with that service, they, I got a telephone call, long distance call. It was the pastor of the First Methodist Church. And he said, Brother Harold, our whole parish is in an uproar. He said, would you come back to my church next Saturday, next Sunday night and preach? said, we need you. We need you to come back. I said to the preacher, would you let me close the meeting next Sunday morning and go back down to Ringgold? He said, I'll give you permission. I went back to that First Methodist Church, it was packed, the yard was filled, and when I stood up to preach, I never opened my Bible till 17 men and women jumped up out of those seats and ran to that altar and said, we want to get saved. I want to tell you something, there's a line drawn. And when you blaspheme and accredit the work of the Holy Ghost to the work of the devil, you better get all of your insurance policies in shape. And I tell you, you better make arrangements with the funeral under, uh, with the funeral director because you are going to die within the next 24 hours. Before I left that room this morning, I didn't sleep much last night, preacher. I didn't get to bed till after 12, almost, almost 1. And I woke up a little bit after 4 o'clock, just a little bit before 4, about 3.30. God said, you're not going to sleep anymore. I want you to pray. And I tell you, God assured me that there'd be nobody here today that had committed that sin. God says, I want you to warn them so that they won't ever do it. But there's nobody there, will be there, that's already over that deadline. So I want to tell you there's not a person, and I believe God, I do not believe that there's a person in this house that has already blasphemed against God's Spirit or stepped over deadline number one. Deadline number two. What is deadline number two? Deadline number two, brother, I tell you, sending away your day of grace. I want you to turn your Bibles to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29 and verse 1. And the Lord revealed to me this morning that there are many, listen to what I'm about to say, the Bible, uh, the Lord showed me this morning that there are many here that according to what the Bible has to say, is in danger of committing this sin. And the Lord said, I'm going to let you warn them for the last time I'm ever going to warn them. Preacher, as sure as my name is J. Harold Smith, this morning is the last time and the last chance somebody in this house is ever going to have to get saved. I don't have any somebody in this choir this morning. God's going to give you the last chance you're ever going to have to get saved. You say, I'm already saved. I'm a church member. I've been baptized. I joined the church when I was 12 years old and I was baptized, but I was as lost as a goose. I believe, Brother Preacher, you've got some members right here this morning, members of this great church that have never been born again. And I believe they're here this morning. And I believe God's going to give them the last chance you're ever going to have to get saved. There's some of you sitting right here, you've heard God's preachers preach. Maybe some of you have heard Billy Graham 
Maybe some of you heard Jack Hiles. Maybe some of you heard Dr. Van Ippy. Maybe some of you heard, but I tell the greatest preachers in all of the world preach. And you said, well, not today, not now, not this morning, not tonight. And God's allowed you to come here to hear the last sermon you're ever going to have. And if you turn this message down this morning, I believe, brother, God's going to mark you off and close the Lamb's book of life and blot your name, your space for your name out of this book. I want you to turn now to Proverbs 29.1. He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall what? shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without what? And that without remedy. Oh, I want to tell you, could God ever make it any plainer? Could he ever make it any plainer? The Bible says, when once the master of the house is risen up and is shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock. Do you remember, my precious friends, how that old Noah preached for all of those years, and how he built on the ark? And then one day, Brother God said all to all the animals, get into the ark. Then he said to Noah, get in the ark, after all the animals had gone in, and the Bible says that God left that door of that ark open after all of the animals had gone in, after Noah had gone in. How many days, preacher? How many days did he leave the door of the ark open before he shut it? After all of them had gone in, seven days. Seven. And I always have believed that old Noah stood and said, Folk, you've seen this great miracle. Why, I could not control all of these animals, but they've come out of the forest. They have come out of the jungles. Look at them. They've all come into the ark. Come in. God's going to shut the door one of these days and you're going to be out. And the Bible says they stood out there and scoffed and mocked. But on the seventh day, the Bible says God shut to the door. And when that storm began to come and the waters began to come up, I can see them as they beat on the door. I can hear them say, oh Noah, oh Noah, you remember Noah, we were the ones that sold you the pitch that went on the outside and on the inside there. Oh Noah, we were the ones that hewed out the gopher wood for you. Oh Mr. Noah, don't you remember, we were the ones that worked on the, and we were the carpenters that helped you hew out and build the ark. Please Mr. Noah, let us in. I can hear Noah say to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, see if he can pull this door open. And I see him as get a hold of that door and they try to pull it open and it won't budge. There's going to come a time, brother, I want to tell you, there's going to come a time, as sure as my name is J. Harold Smith, when God's not going to let any man open the door for you. There's going to come a time when you can call Brother Oral Roberts, you can call Billy Graham, you can call me, you can call Dr. Pennell, you can just call everywhere you want to and get every preacher you know, and brother, they're not going to be able to get a prayer through for you. You're over God's deadline. You've said no to the Holy Spirit for the last time. God's ever going to let you say it. The Bible says, Hear that my spirit shall not always strive with man. Do you remember, my dear friends, the Bible declares how that Jeremiah said there are some people that I command you not to pray for. Jesus Christ said about the people at Nazareth, he said, they could not believe. There is a line drawn. And brother, I tell you, one of these days you're going to step over it. Ephraim is joined to his idols. And brother, preacher, if you would ask me a moment ago, I picked out the quartet of words, shall never be saved as being the most horrible. But I tell you, brother, there's a trio of words just as awesome as that quartet. And that's where it says about Ephraim. Ephraim is joined to his idols. 
let him alone. Wouldn't it be awful, I tell you, if God were to go down this pew right here this morning on that pew and that pew and this pew and then he went down every pew and he'd say, let that man alone. Don't ever speak to him again, Holy Spirit. Let that girl alone. Let that man alone. Don't ever, don't ever finger around his heart anymore. I've done my best to try to get him saved. I've done my best to try to get her saved. They come down to church and put on a big show and act like they're about ready to fly off to glory. But they got sin in their heart and they know it and they know they've never been saved. And but I tell you, they, when they think they're going to die, they're scared to death to die. They know that they've never been saved. I tell you, some of you men, when you get up to shave in the morning looking right in that mirror at yourself, brother, you know you're nothing but a hypocrite. You know, but I tell you, you've never really been saved. You just walked down the aisle, signed the card, joined the church, got baptized, and now you think, but I tell you, you're saved, and you're living in the same old sin, doing the same old thing that you always did, and there's no evidence, but I tell you, that you're a new creature in Christ. If you're not a new creature in Christ, you've never been saved. I tell you, if you haven't been born again, you're lost. You say, preacher... Have there been many that you've known to commit this sin? I have personally known over a hundred thousand. I really believe, and I'm not exaggerating, I believe I could say that I've known personally over a hundred thousand people committed this sin. The Bible says, Then shall they call me, but I will not answer. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own doing and be filled with their own devices. What a terrible and an awful thought that is. Can you imagine... Stepping over a line and having God say, that's it. No more chance. There is a time we know not when, a place we know not where, that marks the destiny of men from glory to despair. There's a line drawn. And one of these days you'll be sitting in a meeting just like this. Or maybe some of you have already, already been in a meeting. God's already signed your death warrant. Maybe some of you, I tell you, already stepped over the deadline. Maybe you have. And you said, I'm not going to come to Jesus. And you stepped over that deadline. And since that time, you have heard preachers preach, and none of them touch your heart. I want to tell you something. If you can sit out there this morning and hear me preach, and you have no feeling in your heart, and you sit there, brother, thinking about that movie you was in last night, or thinking about that woman you got a date with, brother, next week, I tell you, you're thinking about the things of this world, and this message is not touching your heart. I want to tell you something. I'm afraid you're already over God's deadline. Preacher, how long will a man live after he commits his sin? I've known men to live 60 years. I was preaching one night, and I saw a dear old man. They brought him in and put him in a chair over here. I walked back to him at the invitation. Oh, I was just asking several people. I came to him, and I said, are you saved, sir? He said, no, sir. And preacher, don't waste any time with me. He said, I'm 74 years old. No, he said, I'm 78 years old. And he said, when I was 18 years old, I attended a Brush Arbor meeting sponsored by the Methodist Church. And he said, preacher, that was 60 years ago. And God spoke to my heart that night. And several people spoke to me about my soul and I cried and I, and I just wept, but I didn't go forward. I didn't give my heart to Jesus. And he said, I have never felt the call of God again. Now, let me tell you something, folk. Let me tell you this. You say, I'll get saved when I get good and ready. No, you won't. I'll tell you, this Bible says, except the Spirit of God draw you.
And I tell you that God, the Holy Ghost has got to convict you. And when you harden your heart and stick in your neck and turn him away time after time, one of these days God's going to say, that's enough, don't ever bother him again. And you'll never again hear the plea, nor the call, nor the wooing of the Spirit of God. You're in danger. You're in danger. I'll never forget as long as I lived the night in Lawrence, South Carolina, in the Lucas Avenue Baptist Church, when two sweet girls, they were sisters, I saw them sitting under the balcony, over in the little room, or, 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 under the, in one of the Sunday school rooms, over under the balcony. And when I gave them attention, I walked back and I said to them, are you young ladies saved? We'd already had about 25 or 30 to go forward. And the oldest one, 18 years old, said, no, sir, preacher, we are not. But this is my sister, she's 15 years old, and we've discussed it, and we're going to get saved before this revival is over. This was the first Sunday night of the revival. And I said, honey, you have no right to say that. I said, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is accepted time. I said, if God's calling you, come now, honey, come now. I never forget it. She bowed her head over on that, uh, bowed her, put her hands over on that pew, and the tears fell off. And the youngest one said to her, I'll go if you'll go. And finally she straightened up and said, we're not going to go tonight. I walked back up in the pulpit, and it just popped out of my mouth. I said, if I'm God's preacher, before morning the undertaker will be in this community to get somebody's body that's crossed over God's deadline. As we went home that night, my wife said, why did you say that? I said, honey, I did not plan it, it just popped out. At 4 o'clock the next morning, I heard the fire trucks. I was staying with Mr. and Mrs. George Stewart, my wife and I were, and I heard Miss Stewart say, yonder's the fire, George, yonder's the fire. My wife and I got to put on our bathrobes, got in my car, and drove around over there. But we, the, the, the fire trucks had it blocked off, and we couldn't get near the house. I came on back and went to bed, and Mrs. Stewart had gotten up and gone to the fire. And she came in about 30 minutes after we'd gone back to bed. She said, preacher, get up. An awful tragedy has taken place in our community. The whole Rush family has been murdered. I said, Rush. I said, I talked to two girls tonight about their soul. I talked to them last night about their soul. She said, both of those girls are dead, preacher. They took out the first three pews out of the Lucas Avenue Baptist Church and lined up all those caskets, the whole family, lined them up, and I preached their funeral on Tuesday morning. Sweet, wonderful girls but they said no to God for the last time. On a Sunday morning in my church, I preached and a sweet mother was sitting out here between her two daughters, lovely girls. They were both members of our church. One of them was the executive secretary of a big, one of our largest plants. Another one was an executive secretary for a law firm. And there sitting between them was their lovely mother. Never was there a sweeter woman, but lost. We had tried to win her to God many times. But she was brought up in a church where they felt that there wasn't anything you could do about it, that if you were destined to get saved, you'd get saved. And if you weren't destined to get saved, there's nothing you could do about it. And I begged her. She walked out of the building. She knew how I loved beautiful roses. And she had a gar gorgeous rose garden. And she said to one of her daughters about 5 o'clock that afternoon, she said, go get me the scissors. I want to go out in the rose garden, and I want to cut Brother Harold some of those buds and take them to him and put them on his desk so he can enjoy them next week. The daughter went and got the scissors. She got down the steps and had started up the little path to a rose garden and fell dead. I preached her funeral Tuesday morning. 
our church was sold it right here in the big center section. We do not have it arranged like this. We had two big aisles. All this big center section was here. And our ladies' lounge was right back through here. And I was about halfway through my sermon when the oldest daughter got up out of that third pew. And I thought she was going to the ladies' lounge, but instead she turned and came to the casket and bowed and put her hands over and on her mother's hands and began to say, Oh, oh, my sweet mother. My sweet mother is in hell. My sweet mother is in hell. Everybody in that church began to mourn and to weep. And I couldn't help but think, Brother Bill, if last Sunday when I was begging her to come to God, if some of you hadn't been looking at your watch, seeing when is the preacher going to let us out, if you'd have started crying like that, maybe I could have wondered to Jesus. I just closed up my Bible and said no more. I begged a little 14-year-old girl to give her heart to God. She said, not tonight. On the way home that night, four drunken men ran into the car as the father was turning into the driveway. The father escaped, the mother escaped, but little Katie was pinned in that back seat of that car. The gasoline began to gush out. One of the men, they went on and wrecked about as far as from here to the back of the church and wrecked the car. One of the men got out and in his drunken stupor, he didn't realize he lit a cigarette and threw that light, that match down in that gasoline. In a moment, that gasoline, it engulfed that car. And they told me, people told me, by that time, there's four or five cars stopped. And they were trying to get little Katie out, trying to pull open the door, but they couldn't get her out. And then finally, when that fire engulfed it, they had to take a hold of that father and mother. And little Katie on the inside said, oh, mama, mama, get me out of this car, daddy, get me out of this car. Daddy, I'm going to burn to death. I'm going to hell, daddy. I'm going to hell, mama. And that mother said, Katie, pray, honey, pray, honey, ask God to forgive you. And she said, Mama, I can't pray. Mama, I'm going to hell. Oh, Mama, oh, 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 Mama, get me out of this car. I'm going to hell, Mama. I wish I'd have gone. I wish I'd have gone down there when Preacher Smith begged me tonight to go, Mama. I'm going to hell. Pray, Katie. I can't pray, honey. I want to tell you something one of these days, suddenly, you don't have to be an old man with gray hair like me. I tell you, you can be one of these boys and girls right on this front bench. You can be one of you junior highs over here. One of these days, you're going to be in an automobile accident before you know it. You're going to hear the screeching of those tires. You're going to hear glass, but I tell you, breaking. You're going to hear tin wrapped around itself, and you're going to be groaning. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. I was in a revival meeting in... Shelby, North Carolina. I never had such a burden that somebody was going to hell that night as I did then. I called on Dr. Zeno Wall, pastor of the First Baptist Church, to lead in prayer. I called on Dr. Henry Waldrop, pastor of the Calvary Baptist Church, to lead in prayer. I called on Dr. Uh, Dr. Martin, pastor of the Second Baptist Church, to lead in prayer. I called on two other preachers. I was the sixth preacher to pray. When I got up on my knees, it just like a big hand turned me around, and they had a choir. They had four tiers of seats, and right here in the center, they had a little door right here in the center. And I just opened that door, began to walk up that thing, and on the left side stood a young man by the name of Hood Allen, six feet, two inches tall, handsome, one of the most handsome men I've ever met. I said, Hood, you're the man. You're going to hell tonight, Hood, if you don't come to Jesus. They'll forget old Hood bowed over that pew and wept and cried. I don't generally notice what a person has on, but I tell you, I couldn't help but remember that. He had a little scotch plaid jacket, a little pocket up here, a pocket here, one here, and one here. If I'd have felt right up here in this little pocket, right up here, I'd have found a little note asking me to preach his funeral. If I'd have dropped my hand back in his hip pocket, I'd have found a little automatic pistol about that long. Hood Allen walked out of that church 
As we started down the aisle of the church, going out of the church, Dr. Martin said to me, Harold, you're having a nervous breakdown. You're having a nervous breakdown. He said, I've never seen anybody take on like you did tonight. He said, you don't know that somebody in that house was going to hell tonight. I said, I not only know that somebody was going to hell, but I said, Dr. Martin, I know who it is. It's Hood Allen. Oh, he said, Harold, you're just, you're just excited and, and you're having a nervous breakdown. About that time, David, his son, running in the back door of the church, said, Oh, Daddy, oh, Daddy, they just called. Hood Allen just shot himself. Clarence Martin fell in that aisle. He said, Oh, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Maybe if I'd have prayed like I ought to pray, maybe they'd gotten saved. I want to tell you something. God told me as much as I've ever had a revelation from God in my life that there's somebody in this house this morning going to have your last call and God said you do your best because this is the last time somebody's ever going to have a chance to get Jesus in their heart. So Harold, do your best. My beloved pastor, the one that baptized me, Brother Lawrence Roberts, told me that his church was one of the richest men in all of their county. Dr. Roberts said he came one night to hear him preach. Brother Roberts said, God put him on my heart. And when I gave the invitation, he stood back there. And I went back to him and I said, John, John, I believe this is the last call God's ever going to give you, John. And he said, Preacher, I'd like to go down there. But he said, I got a deal on next Wednesday. And he said, Preacher, if I went down there, I'd have to call off that deal. And I'd lose $20,000. Brother Robert said, you've got more money than you and your wife and your 16-year-old daughter can ever spend. Come on, John. Not going. Brother Robert said on Tuesday morning about 4 o'clock, his telephone rang. And this, uh, John's wife said, Preacher, come out here quick as you can. We can't get in touch with the doctor. And John woke up about an hour ago. And Brother, Brother Roberts, we can't do a thing with him. He's screaming. And, and we can't do a thing with him. Brother Roberts said, her call was so urgent. I just pulled my pants on over my pajamas and put my coat on over my pajamas and jumped in my car. My wife and I went out. He said, when I stopped my car in front of that palatial home, I could hear him saying, Don't let him have me. Don't let him have me. Brother Robert said, if I'd never been in the house, I wouldn't have had a guide to have got me back to that back room. He said, I went back in that room, and he said, there he was on the bed. His wife was on one side, his daughter on the other, and he had him by the, by the arm. And he was borne his head back in the headboard of that bed, and he said, don't let him have me, don't let him have me, don't let him have me. Brother Robert said, I leaned over the bed, and I said to him, why, John, there's nobody after you. He said, oh, Brother Roberts, oh, Brother Roberts, go shut the front door. Oh, sure, shut the front door and lock it. Yonder comes the devil. Yonder comes the devil, and see that chain? He's coming after me, Brother Roberts. Don't let him have me. Brother Roberts said, John, John, there's no one after you. He said, he's coming up our front steps. He's coming in our front door. He's coming down the hall. Please, Brother Roberts. Please, honey, get up and shut the door. Don't let him in. There he is. There he is. He's coming through our door. He's calling over the foot of the bed. He's wrapping that chain around my ankles. He's wrapping that chain around my, my legs. He's wrapping that chain around my waist. Brother Roberts, Brother Roberts, don't let him have me. He's, he's, he's choking me. Brother Roberts, Brother Roberts, he's, he's, he's choking me. Don't let him have me. Brother Roberts said he relaxed and said he's got me. He said, Harold, his hair was thicker than yours. All over the headboard of that bed were hairs all over the sheet. He said, I pulled him down in the bed and pulled the sheet up over him. I want to tell you something. There's somebody in this house. When you walk out of these doors, 
and leave here today, that same devil is going to pay you a visit. And you can call for the preacher. And you can get your godly wife and your godly children around you. But I want to tell you something. It'll be too late. Too late. Too late. That was a sin that Agrippa committed. That was a sin that Festus and Felix committed. That was a sin that the rich young ruler committed. Are you going to step over that deadline? I believe with all of my heart. I believe this. I believe there's some of you young people right over here. I believe you've already got your foot up. You already got your foot up ready to make that step. And I say, please, please don't take that step. Turn around. Come to Jesus. Deadline number two then is what? Saying no to the Holy Spirit till he takes his final flight and never comes again. To knock on your door. Deadline number three is a sin recorded here in the Bible that God says that only a, a, a believer can commit. A born-again believer cannot blaspheme against God's Spirit. A born-again believer cannot sin away his day of grace. But I want you to turn your Bible to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. And preacher, here's where the majority of the people right here this morning are about ready to step over a deadline. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. And I believe that the great majority of the people in this house this morning, I believe that a great number of you are going to face up to whether you'll step over God's deadline or whether you will not. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. And doctor, who is this book of the first epistle of John written to? It was written to the Christians. Now I want you to read it. Have you found it in, in, in the King James Version? 1 John 5, 16. If any man see his what, somebody tell me. Brother, sin a sin which is not unto what? Death. I shall ask, I, uh, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now you say, Brother Smith, what in the world is that sin that I could commit as a believer? A born-again believer. I know I'm saved. Dr. Tittle, I believe that you and your wife are saved. I really believe that with all of my heart. Doctor, I never knew you before this meeting, but I believe you're a born-again man. I never knew you're a minister of music. Brother, brother, brother Barry, I believe you're a born-again man. I believe you're saved. I believe you're saved, dear brother. Your spirit witnesses with my spirit, and your spirit witnesses with my spirit. But I want to tell you something. God knows if you've got a little crooked sin in your life. God knows if there's some jealousy or envy or malice or some little old something tucked away down in that heart. God knows if there's pride in your heart. God knows this preacher. And Brother Bill, I believe you've got faith in me. I'd have never walked into this pulpit. I believe that. But Brother Bill, if there's something crooked in my life, God knows about it. And I want to tell you something, sir. I'd be afraid at 2 o'clock to get on that plane in Denver. I mean, I mean in, in Detroit. If my heart wasn't right with God. I tell you, you know your heart. Have you got some little crooked thing down in your heart that nobody knows about? Not even your wife or your husband or your children? Do you, do you know of some sin in your heart this morning? You say, yes, I do. All right, God brought you here to hear this sermon, and you're going to make up your mind this morning whether you're going to give up that sin now and forever. I tell you whether God's going to sign your death warrant and kill you, one of the two. 
Now you say, I don't believe that. All right, let me turn you, I want you to turn your Bibles. Everybody that has a Bible, turn to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, and I'm going to read verse, beginning with verse 6. And five times now, you're going to hear these words, Yet have ye not returned to me, saith the Lord. Five times, you're going to hear that expression. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all of your cities, and water of bread in all of your places. Yet have you not returned to me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months of the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. And one piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained, not withered. So two or three cities wanted in one city to, to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned to me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with a blessing and milled you when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned to me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the banner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with a sword and have taken away your horses and made, have made the stink of your camps to come into your nostrils. Yet have you not returned to me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have you not returned to me, saith the Lord. God said, I sent famine and you didn't come back. I sent drought and you wouldn't return. I sent pestilence and you wouldn't return. I sent war and you wouldn't return. I sent destruction and you wouldn't return. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God. Get ready to die. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5, 5. And I'm going to quote this verse, and if you've got a King James Version Bible, and that's the only kind I ever use, I have some of the others that I look at to see what they say, but I never have preached a sermon out of any other Bible but the King James Version, and that's my Bible that I study. I'm going to quote it, and if you've got the right kind of Bible, this is the way it reads. Listen. To deliver such an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Did I quote it right? All right, what does God say? I'm going to take this Christian and deliver him into the hand of the devil for the destruction of what? All right, that means death, to kill him. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. See, his soul's not going to go to hell. God's just going to kill him. Now, doctor, if God determines that J. Harold Smith cannot live until the rapture, and I have to go through the corridors of death, I don't want the devil to do the killing. Do you remember in the book of Job, but I tell you, when, Job, when the devil said to God, why, sure, Job serves you. You let me have him for a while, and I'll show you that his religion's not skin deep. God said you can have everything he's got but his life. And you remember what the devil did to him? I've had the devil to kill my only son. I've had the devil to burn my home twice. I had the big tabernacle in Greenville to burn. I've had my tires cut off of my car many, many times. We'd go off, Brother Archer, and come back home, and all of our shrubbery would either be cut down and, Brother, piled up on our porch. I've had him to throw beer bottles through my windows. Brother, I tell you, I've had, every, I've had obscene words written, I tell you, all over my house and on the outside of my house. I had a friend, brother, that I trusted like a brother that took my whole life savings. 
I had, to, I had to sell my home and pay off a note that I'd signed for a man that I'd trusted and believed. But I want to tell you, the devil's never been able to get my life. And preacher, when I come down to die, I don't want the devil to do the killing. I do not want to die in the devil's slaughterhouse. You say, preacher, how many saints, how many Christians do you know that God signed their death warrant? So many until I am not able to tell you the number. If you are sitting out here this morning, you've got some little pet sin in your heart and God knows about it and you won't confess it, you get ready for the undertaker. Now this business about you being backslidden for 10 or 15 years, that's all bunk. Man, I want to tell you something, if you get away from God, God will go to whipping you right immediately. And he'll whip you and whip you and whip you. And the Bible says that if he doesn't whip you, that you're a spiritual bastard. Now that's what the Bible said. I didn't say that. I'm using the scriptural term. You're not a son of God. I tell you, if you can sin and get by with it. And so if some of you are being punished because of that sin that's in your heart, and you know it, maybe I tell you the right relationship between you and your wife. Maybe not between you and your husband. Maybe you hate him. Maybe you hate her. Maybe I tell you all you do is fuss and fight and fume. Maybe I tell you some of you have lied and cheated and stolen and won't pay your grocery bill or your doctor bill. Maybe some of you have been robbing God of his tithe and his offering. Maybe some of you got vicious hatred in your heart. Maybe some of you have talked about your pastor and said things about him that you ought not to say or about some other preacher. Maybe some of you this week that the members of this church have been laying out all the week. You weren't working. You just stayed at home and looked at television. Or you went bowling, but I tell you, instead of coming to the revival, you're wrong with God. A man, but I tell you, that will pass up his church when they're in revival and go bowling is wrong with God. Or if you'll pass it up and go to the Masonic Lodge, you're wrong with God. Or you'll pass it up and go to your labor union meeting, you're wrong with God. Your church should be and have priority in your life. I could go on and name a hundred things here this morning and maybe never touch that little thing that's in your heart. But preacher, I got all the faith in the world in you. I believe in you. I've made the statement twice this week that I wish, I wish you were my son, that your wife was my daughter-in-law and your sweet children, my grandchildren. I've made that statement twice. It's the third time. I'm not trying to be trite with it, but I mean it. But preacher, God knows Bill Pimmel. Bill, if you've got some little old pet sin in your heart and you refuse to come to this altar this morning, that old airplane may go down, Brother Tuesday. You may be lost at sea. We'll never see your body again. I want to tell you something. There's somebody right here in this house. I'm talking about a Christian. I'm talking about a born-again believer. I'm talking about somebody that's really saved. And you know you've got some little pet sins and God's been talking to you about it. And you have been doing nothing about it. God's got his pen out. He's got your death warrant. And you're just waiting to see what's going to happen at the close of this service. Are you going to sit there? Or is God going to write out your death warrant and pin it on your back? I've known six preachers to commit this sin. Six. They had the most horrible deaths. One of them with a cancer of the pancreas. 
Another one, brother, I tell you, caught on fire. And his body was horribly mangled and burned. Another one, I tell you, one of the most horrible deaths I've ever seen a man die. I've seen young people die in the slaughterhouse of the devil. And I've stood there and watched them die and couldn't pray, couldn't say a word. There's a deadline. You've got your foot up. You ready to take that fatal final step? I say, don't take it. Please, 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 please don't take that fatal final step. Turn around. Turn around and take a step of faith toward Christ and let him forgive you of your sins. What are you going to do this morning? Are you going to repent? And turn to God or step over his deadline without any singing, without any playing on the instruments. How many of you will get right up out of that seat where you are sitting and say, Preacher, I don't intend to step over this deadline. I'm coming to God. I want him to forgive me of my sin. Now, just a minute before anybody comes. I'll tell you how you can know whether you ought to come or not. If you have any desire at all to come, get up out of that seat and come. If you have absolutely no desire to come, don't you budge. But I tell you, if God is saying to you that there's a possibility that you can step over that deadline, don't you dare sit there. You may be the only one in the building that will step over the deadline. Are you willing to get right up out of that seat if God is saying, come? Are you willing to get right up out of that seat now, wherever you are, and come and stand right here? I don't want you to kneel. I want you to come and stand facing me. Let me have a closing prayer with you. Will you get up out of that seat and come right now? How many will come? Just those that God's speaking to. You're an intelligent congregation, and God can speak to your heart. I tell you, there's some of you dads and mothers, I tell you, you better make a move here. Some of you grandfathers and grandmothers, I tell you, you better make a move. What is that little pet sin in your heart? Do you have a family altar? Do you ever have a prayer with your family? Do you ask the blessing at the table before you gulp down your food? Have you robbed God of his tithe and of his offering? What is that sin in your heart? Have you got an evil mind? Is God saying, get up out of that seat and come? Get up out of that seat and come. If you're sitting there saying, I'm as good as anybody else in this church, that's the language of the devil. I want to tell you, if you're sitting there saying, I'm not going down there, what would somebody say if I go down there? I'm a deacon. I'm a Sunday school teacher. You better get up out of that seat and stop listening to the voice of the devil. You better do it. I'm warning you. All right, the last time I ask, anybody else going to get up and come? God's going to take a picture of this thing. And brother, I tell you, after the service, don't come down here and say to me, preacher, pray for me. I'll be going out that door catching a plane now in a few minutes. Don't come down here and say to Brother Bill, pray for me. I tell you, if you wouldn't come now, don't come then because it may be too late. You may already be over God's deadline. You say, I'm a visitor here. I'm not inviting members. I'm inviting everybody that doesn't know God to come and everybody that's a born-again believer and has got some little pet sin. 
God's giving you an invitation when you get up out of that seat and come. That's right. Thank God. Don't you sit there and cross over that deadline. There's somebody right in this section right here that if you sit in that seat and remain there till we have this benediction, you need to come and ask anybody to pray for you. Your death warrant's going to be signed. Anybody over in this section? Anybody down in this section that God's speaking to, will you get up out of that seat and come right now? Anybody in this section right here, some of you folk back under that balcony? You can be on the very back row of this place and God can sign your death warrant just as well as he can on the front. Anybody else in this section right here want to come or you want to remain seated? We're going to ask God to make a picture of this in a moment. And you can't deny it when you stand before God. And when the death angel starts to lay his hand upon you, brother, I tell you, you can't say, well, I didn't have a chance. Over on that far side over there, anybody else coming to this altar? In that last section? All right. Now, thank God for all of you that came. Thank the Lord. Now, I want every one of you to look up at me just a minute. You have taken that first step. You are going to get up out of that seat and come. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. God assured me I had the promise of the Lord before I ever left that room. Preacher, on the back, on the back of my file that you've written to me, I can go out there and show you that I wrote out a prayer on the back of that file this morning. God assured me that nobody that would come to this altar would ever step over that deadline. And I tell you, I don't believe there's a person in this altar that's going to step over that deadline. But I have the feeling that there's somebody, there's somebody still seated, that this is the last call God's ever going to give them. Now, how many of you that came to this altar this morning are willing to confess your sin? If you're willing to confess your sin, will you raise your hand away up high? All right, listen to this promise. The Bible says that if we shall confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now you just forget about everybody else and you look down in your own heart. Now I want us to take a little trip. I want us to take a little trip on a little unseen elevator. I want us to get on that little elevator, go down to our heart, open the door of our heart, look in and see some things. Will you do it? All right, let's bow our head. Close our eyes. I want every head bowed, every eye closed. Everyone, don't look around. Don't speak to anybody. Now then, let's get on that little invisible elevator. And let's go down, down, down. All right, stop it. Now get off of that elevator. You're right in front of the door of your own heart. Open the door of your heart. All right, step in. Now shut the door. Now let the Lord turn the light on. My, what do you see? Do some of you see that you've never been anything but just a church member? That's all you've ever been. You've never really been a child of God. You've never really been saved. You've never been born again. I tell you, you just joined the church and got baptized. And you've done the best you could. But oh, what a failure. You really have never really been saved. Do you see there that your heart has never been redeemed by the blood? You say, preacher, I see it. Oh, what can I do about it, Brother Harold? Ask God to save you right now. Say, oh, Lord, I'm a church member, but I've never been saved. Never been born again. Save me, Lord. Save me. Did you pray it? All right, now some of you are saved. You are really saved, but you've got little old pet sins in your heart. Look at there. There's that big old pile of rubbish. Look at all those old serpents crawling around over that pile of rubbish. Some of you young people got that old rock and roll music. There it is, big old piles of rock and roll music. Some of you got old books of pornography. 
Some of you married ladies got old true ranch romances and all of that filthy junk of sex that you read and study. Some of you, I tell you, got some of the, the, uh, some of the instruments of, of the occult. Uh, there you have, maybe some of you got some dove's blood or got a little altar or something else. I tell you, I don't know what it is, but there it is in your heart. You see it. Some of you see where you've been robbing God of his tithe. Some of you see where you've been laying out of church and going hunting and fishing and golfing on the Lord's Day. Some of you see, I'll tell you, there in your heart where you've been talking about the preacher. You haven't been in sympathy with the program of the church. You see it. Some of you see how you passed up this revival. Didn't come. You could have come, but you didn't. Some of you see that hate that you have for even your own children. Some of you children see the hate that you have for your dear dad and mother. Some of you see how that, that woman you once loved, you now hate her. And that man you once loved, you now despise him. Ask God to get that out of your heart. Whatever that sin is, ask him to get it out. Will you do it right now? Come on. Confess it. You say, well, God knows it. Why should I confess it? He wants to hear you confess it. Now, maybe I haven't mentioned it, but you know what's in your heart right now in a moment of silence. Will you really confess it to God and ask him to forgive you? Right now. All right, now let's all pray this prayer in unison and out loud with each other. I'm going to pray it with you. Will you pray this prayer? Say, Dear Lord, thank you for hearing my prayer, for cleansing my heart, for saving my soul. Now, Lord, fill my heart with the Holy Spirit. Don't let it stay empty. Take my life, my lip, my light, my liberty, my labor, and my love, and get glory to thy name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. How many of you prayed that prayer? You meant it all the way to the back, all the way around. How many of you say, Preacher, I prayed that prayer and I meant it. Praise God. I know God's forgiven me this morning. And I know